I'm Jamie Virgen with Sinclair Broadcasting in San Antonio, Texas. Thank you for being with us for a new segment of Immigration Crisis, The Fight for the Southern Border. As the clock ticks to the end of Title 42, the Trump-era policy that returned asylum seekers to Mexico during COVID, the U.S. government has filed an appeal to keep it in place. This disputed enforcement rule first took effect in March of 2020, denying migrants rights to seek asylum under U.S. and international laws on grounds of preventing the spread of COVID-19. The Department of Homeland Security said it would file an appeal with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, challenging a November ruling by U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan that ordered President Joe Biden's administration to lift the asylum restrictions. The restrictions were put in place under former President Donald Trump. The practice, according to Judge Emmett, and if you look him up, it was authorized under Title 42 of a broad broader 1944 policy covering public health and has been used to expel migrants more than 2.4 million times. Sullivan, the judge, has called the expulsion of migrants with this rule as arbitrary and capricious. Immigrant rights groups have argued that the use of Title 42 unjustly harms people fleeing persecution and that the pandemic was a pretext used by the Trump administration to curb immigration. Now we're here with the Biden administration and they have made the decision to appeal and it's unsurprising given its vigorous defense of policy for the past two years and that was according to an attorney with the ACLU. He was the lead counsel on its Title 42 litigation. Now a coalition of conservative-leaning states, including Texas, wants to keep in place the Trump-era policy. It's really a public health rule. They claim that the ban has been unevenly enforced by nationality, falling largely on migrants from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, as well as Mexicans, because Mexico allows them to be returned from the United States. Now, last month, Mexico began accepting Venezuelans who are expelled from the United States under Title 42, causing a sharp drop in those numbers that we saw Venezuelans seeking asylum at the U.S. border. <laughs> Just days ago, clashes between asylum seekers in Juarez and Mexican authorities were reported as the Mexican law enforcement pushed many out of the makeshift camp on the border, as our Sinclair station KFOX reports. That's what you're hearing there is the confrontations between the migrants and the authorities in Mexico. They sent them to an area on Sunday. And according to KINT in El Paso, the authorities say the cold temperatures are endangering the lives of those migrants who sleep outside. But the migrants are refusing to leave. And when the police arrive, some migrants reportedly 
threw rocks at them. Now, they're saying that this is inhumane. No one knows what they've suffered. That was one of the migrants that was interviewed by KINT out in El Paso. Now, others set tents on fires, and there are claims that women and children were taken by force. Around 400 of them left on their own. Some accepted the help offered and went to a shelter in Juarez. Patients that we saw were hot to the touch. They were suffering uh, from heat stroke, heat exhaustion, uh, no signs of water in the vehicle. It was a refrigerated tractor trailer, but there was no uh, visible working AC unit on that rig. Now it's been almost six months since 53 migrants lost their lives in the back of an 18-wheeler on the south side of San Antonio, which is in Bear County near Interstate 35. Now we are learning that there was another body found. 45 days later, the head guy over at Catholic Charities in San Antonio found a body after a woman called him over. He was visiting the makeshift memorial that was recently set on fire and he found a body. Now he called 911 and that's when the police showed up. So the count may be at 54. Antonio, the last time we spoke, uh, we talked about the incident that happened down on the south side back earlier in the year. You were there at that incident. I remember being there reporting. But then you went back many days later and tell me what what you found. Yeah, so I, you know, I was there the same night um, several times after that. But the last time I went, maybe it was forty five days after, and. Um, you know, a, a lady, a nice lady uh, came up to me and asked me if I could actually uh, go with her because she thought that she had seen a body and she was afraid. So I went with her to see this, this body and it actually was a body who, according to the police and the fire department, had been around maybe 45 days there. So um, we believe that maybe that person was actually part of the trailer and it was maybe 200 feet away from the actually where the trailer was wow so that would mean the number probably went up to 54. correct incredible for you tell me about that experience i just did a, an interview recently with the chief of the fire department here in san antonio chief charles hood and he was talking about the help that he needed afterwards because the scent <laughs> There's a smell of meat tenderizer. A lot of the people that respond to that, they will tell you the meat tenderizer was what got them because it was spread out so to, uh, you know, throw the scent off of the, the canines. And so when I left, I knew that, you know, I'm gonna have a problem with this because I can't get that scent out. The olfactory senses, the smell, are some of the senses that stay with war victims, victims of crashes, Forever, It's like the one thing that you can always, that smell. So I had to go see my um, clinician a couple of times because I needed help. How have you been able to process that even though you deal with a lot of tragedies? How has this affected you? Well, it was very sad. I mean, it was a horrible experience because the body 
had no eyes. Uh, you could actually see the bones. Uh, the school was all black. I had never seen anything like this. So I, I do remember for me, I left that place and I called my wife and I told her what happened. And I went directly to church to pray for, for his soul. Um, so it has been a lot of praying, uh, but I can tell you that that was a, one of the most dramatic experiences of my life. Uh, so uh, it does, it makes sense to me that some people had to look for, for help. With uh, Christmas right now, I get a lot of people asking me, you know, what can we do? I want to take some clothes to San Pedro. Where do I take them? What, what are they asking for? What things do you need help with if people feel inclined to donate, especially right now at Christmas time? I think right now the biggest issue that we have will be clothes for them. Uh, last week we have 5,700 people coming through and, uh, you know, many of them have only the clothes that they have on. They don't have anything else. So for us, we're trying our, our best to actually give them new clothes, one set of new clothes, so they can have some dignity and respect. Um, so, you know, we will take donations if people want to give us money. We can always use the money, of course. Uh, but, you know, if anyone wants to feel like, you know, I want to buy something for them, I will think gloves, uh, scarves, things like that for this winter will, will, will be used. And your address there is? Uh, not the one on San Pedro. Yeah, yeah. The, the address will be 202 West French Place here in San Antonio. Okay. And the last question I had for you, a lot of people, you know, the politics of this, the, that, you're not going to change anyone's mind on their politics or religious beliefs or anything else. What would you say to anyone that's listening, especially right now with it being Christmas and, you know, they have this issue, the immigration issue, everybody keeps talking about it. And there's people that have fear in the community. What would you want to share with them? Uh, you know, I can understand what people are feeling, but, you know, for many, many years, over 10 years, I've been helping immigrants. And the reality that I haven't seen any of those dangerous issues. Uh, uh, you know, I was at Film Colosseum uh, this year. I actually, in the new side, I slept over there with the people to, to see what they experienced. Um, I just found people who want to work. I mean, they're coming here to work. They have nothing in their country. They don't have even staff to eat sometimes. So they are selling whatever they come to uh, to come to the U.S. So it's a very sad thing for me to give up, to see them giving up everything. Uh, but they just want to come to America to work and have a better life. All right. Thank you so much, Antonio. We reached out to the San Antonio Police Department who first responded to the call back on June 27th and we are waiting to get clarification if in fact the count went from 53 to 54. Has the jury reached a verdict? Was it a unanimous verdict? Can you please hand the verdict form to the bailiff? On Thursday in San Antonio, a guilty verdict comes down from a Bear County jury in the trial of a Border Patrol agent who killed four sex industry workers. We, the jury, find the defendant, Juan David Ortiz, guilty of the offense of capital murder as charged in the indictment and as instructed in this charge. After eight days, Juan Ortiz was found guilty after a change of venue from Webb County, which includes the city of Laredo, to San Antonio so he could get a fair trial. Earlier this week, the trial was paused when a juror fainted as graphic images of the four women who were shot in the head and neck were shown. 
I was sitting in that courtroom last week and the one thing that I am gonna remember about this trial is one of those victims when she was found was face down and her hands were clenched and when they turned the body over, she was holding on to a bag of M&Ms he had bought for her before she died. Now, Sheriff Martin Cuellar had the duty to investigate the case against the former intelligence officer for Border Patrol. He was there in the courtroom when that decision came in late on Wednesday night. We are now joined by Sheriff Martin Cuellar from Webb County, Laredo, Texas. Sheriff, thank you for being with us. Um, I know last night was the outcome that you guys were waiting for. You got a guilty verdict on a Border Patrol agent that was a serial killer in Laredo. What yes, do you... uh, first, mm -hmm. yes, go, go ahead, ahead, sir. Go ahead. Okay. Well, first of all, you know, I want to thank you for for the invitation in speaking to you. This is very important that we get it. We get this out to the community, surrounding communities, and everybody for that matter. Um, you know, it was a, a victory after four long years. Justice is finally served, you know, for the victims and the victims' family. Let me ask you, every case is important. Every case is important. It's important to the families. It's important to you guys. But with him being a federal agent, an intelligence federal agent for the Border Patrol, why was it more important to get him off the streets quickly? This, this, first of all, this was a um, complex case because he was a former Border Patrol intelligence supervisor, you know, that cowardly and calculated murdered four victims. And it was very difficult, yeah, I mean, because he, all the information that we're feeding into the intelligence unit, you know, the surrounding um, law enforcement agency, we all give the information to this uh, uh, border patrol sector that get all the information and decipher to law enforcement. For example, if we're working, you know, the uh, the area for, uh, you know, finding out, you know, who saw a red car, black car, whatever, we put it out, you know, that committed a robbery per se. Everything goes to them. So it was a very difficult, complex case, which we didn't know at the time, you know, that that, that it was a border patrol intelligence officer supervisor that was committing these murders. So to me, it's very, very unique, you know, because of, of what, what position he held, you know, and it was very difficult because he was there receiving all the information, you know, yeah. it, it's very, very, very difficult. I can say it over and over because it was, it's a very unique case. So with this case, I mean, he basically could stay ahead of you guys because he was hearing everything that you were finding, but the, the, the tip of the iceberg was one person, right? Yes. And, and that one person is Erica Pena, who was supposed to be his fifth victim. And what happened, she, you know, having a lot of common sense, mark, uh, street sense, 
you know, and, and the courage and the bravery that she had, she figured something was wrong. So by the gas station where where there was a trooper filling up his, his patrol unit with gas, she decides to bolt out of there. When she bolted out, uh, Ortiz grabbed it uh, to her shirt, to her blouse, and tore it off. And she was basically in a bra, you know, at the gas station and, and ran to the DPS trooper. And that's when all the pieces started falling together, finding out, you know, who, who it was. What if she would have never come forward? You guys would have found him, but it would have taken longer, right? It would have taken longer, and unfortunately, he would have killed more victims. You know, because one of the things that um, that we see, you know, the position that he was at, you know, it's like, uh, you know, what, what we say in police lingo, you know, we say, you know, uh, uh, chasing the chasing the rabbit. That's what we would have been doing. You know, but luckily we got a big break and we're able to, you know, to to arrest this uh, coward Border Patrol uh, agent that was committing these murders. Do you think not only was it justice for the families, for the community, but do you think it was also justice for Border Patrol? Because all it takes is one bad apple for the community to lose that faith. Yes, and, and let me let me make this clear. This is not indicative to all the men and women of the Border Patrol. You know, this is something, you know, that happened, you know, and, and uh, in, in my lifetime, my career, you know, I've seen, you know, other serial killers, you know, in other areas, but this in Laredo, Webb County is the first. So it's an isolated, uh, you know, thing that happened with Border Patrol, you know, but, but it's not going to affect our working relationship with them. We're going to continue to work with them. We continue to what's right and protect our communities. Do you think, and do you have that doubt in the back of your head that because of the position that he had of authority, being border patrol, working at one of the largest, or the actually, you guys are the largest landlocked port in the United States with a vulnerable community that comes in with no papers, with fear, not knowing the language. Do you still have some doubt in the back of your mind that there may have been other victims? You know, as a police officer for 41 years, over 41 years, you know, I've learned to to decipher information, to analyze information, to try to get into their minds of, of, of these people that are committing these murders. It's a very complex, you know, no need, I'm not a doctor, you know, but I've been in law enforcement you know, for many years, I I believe that possibly there were other victims that we don't know about, you know, because remember that, you know, there's victims out there, you know, that are crossing the borders in isolated areas, you know, that maybe he ran into some some uh, female or male uh, uh, defensive uh, people that he took advantage and maybe, you know, uh, uh, killed his people. You know, we don't know, but that would always haunt me to to believe that maybe he did some other murders in our area. Do you believe uh, that he had any sort of PTSD because of his previous tours overseas 
or because of the work that he does with the Border Patrol? Or do you think it was just an excuse? To my knowledge, you know, there at the Webb County Jail where, where I supervise and oversee, you know, this uh, jail where he was placed there for four years, uh, I don't believe that he suffered from any PTSD. I don't believe that. That was an excuse that was brought up from the attorneys. The attorneys say that he, you know, he suffered from that. Um, I, I know that he's a military, uh, former military uh, uh, soldier, uh, but I've seen many former uh, military people that come back and, you know, this guy was very adamant of what he did, you know, when he described to our chief investigator, um, Captain Calderon, you know, how he committed these murders. And the, and the evidence showed that it matches everything that he said. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly, you know, the how he committed these crimes because of the evidence that we were able to get from, from those uh, crime scenes. So I don't think that he suffered from any PTSD or anything like that, of that nature. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, and I'll make sure later on, I'll talk to my uh, mental health specialist, but I don't think that he was taking any medication or anything like that while he was there at the county jail. There was an incredible case. I know that I sat in there and some of the, the what had to be shown to the jury was, you know, one lady fainted from seeing the pictures. I mean, it was it was horrific. He had one victim that you were mentioning earlier that she got out of the car. And what did he tell her? And then he killed her anyways. Yes, actually, there was one victim. Uh, I guess he, he had a liking to her because he took her to uh, to I-35, which is north of Laredo, and he thought about killing her. So what what the evidence showed based on his story was that he took her out, he was going to kill her, and he tells her, go ahead and leave Laredo this way, and San Antonio is north, so leave. So she started to walk away, and she comes back, and says, let's pray, you know, pray. And, she, and he immediately says, I told you to leave. And he just shot her, automatically shot her. And killed her like a coward that he is. You know, a calculated serial murder killer that he is. Well, Sheriff Cuellar, we appreciate you being with us today. And we appreciate you sharing the story. I mean, it was I remember covering the story when it was going on and when you guys were looking for the serial killer, but the twist to it that no, no one ever expected was that it was going to be a border patrol agent. So exactly. congratulations and, and, on, on justice being served. And I, I do want to say one thing if I can, Yemi. Um, you know, I want to thank the district attorney's office for preparing this case, getting all the pieces together, and telling the story of how it happened, you know, I want to I want to thank them for doing that. I want to thank the Department of Public Safety, which I used to work for. I used to be a trooper, investigator, and lieutenant. I want to I want to thank the, the troopers that were out there. You know, they had they had the courage to confront um, 
Juan David Ortiz and Juan David Ortiz ran like a coward. I want to thank also our intelligence unit, uh, you know, that, that were able to uh, participate in and provide crucial information on, on convicting this, this serial killer. I also want to uh, thank the Department of Public Safety crime lab. To me, that's awesome the way they, they did things. And as far as the, the farm ballistics that showed everything, uh, I want to uh, thank also, you know, the uh, trace evidence uh, uh, personnel, you know, that they they did a terrific job in comparing, comparing the tire tracks of his truck, you know, with the cast that, that uh, our investigator Ugarte had, had uh, placed on the on the floor, you know, on the ground, I'm sorry, on the ground and matched it directly to his truck. So he puts them in those areas. You know, he puts them in those areas where, 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 you know, where there's no way that he can say that he wasn't there when it happened. You know, now I want to thank uh, just everybody, you know, that, that participated in this case, that did a terrific job. You know, and again, you know, I want to... Uh, give my condolences to the family, to the family, to the victims, you know, because these people, these victims were defenseless women, you know, victims that couldn't defend themselves, you know, and, and I want to, uh, you know, say my condolences to them publicly and, and uh, just, uh, you know, say thank you to you so we can relay this information to everybody, that everybody can get this information that, uh, together, I am committed to public safety and confidence. Uh, as we met in one of the crime scenes, Chilo and I, the, the district attorney, we've made a commitment together, him and I made a commitment that we will, you know, have justice served, you know, and we did this. So we are together, working together to, to make sure that that the community is safe and that when we have to, you know, lay the rule of law and, and, and make sure that they pay for the crime, that we both are there and the district attorney's office and the sheriff's office to do our jobs. Thank you very much for everything. Thank you, Sheriff. Thank you for being with us. That's all for this week. Thank you for joining us again for another segment of Immigration Crisis, The Fight for the Southern Border. I'm Jamie Virgin of Sinclair Broadcasting saying till next time from San Antonio. <laughs>